Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Do you know what's next? We're raising the Catholics. You're surfacing. If you're in the room and you grew up in, at a Catholic church or you went to a Catholic school, this is a prayer that you may have prayed over and over and over in your life. As I started to say that, there may have been a reflex like a doctor hitting your knee and without even intentionally, no voluntary action on your part, you responded and you finished that prayer. Maybe you're joining us online and that's exactly what happened. You never heard your husband or wife talk during a sermon and all of a sudden they just started talking out loud. They finished this prayer about the Holy Mother that's there. Well, this Mother's Day, we're actually going to be looking at Mary. We're going to spend uh, the rest of the service here looking at the life of Mary. And there are very significant differences between the way Protestants have thought about this, the uh, Protestant church, and the Catholic church have thought about Mary. Um, You could accuse the Protestant church of actually not thinking well or thinking much or ever mentioning Mary, except for on Christmas Eve um, around that time, because they're afraid they're going to be like the Catholics, right? And Protestants have their views on why the Catholics have uh, maybe gone too far and have said some things that are there. And there is a lecture to be had that explains the differences and why that each group thinks for different reasons that their position is uh, correct. And I'm not going to be doing that talk this morning. Um, That's not necessarily a sermon. But we are going to be looking at Mary and these different... uh, different aspects in her life. So uh, maybe you're here today or maybe you're joining us online and you thought you were coming uh, to 11 o'clock brunch and your mom or your grandmother uh, told you brunch started at 11 and now you're having to watch somebody preach a sermon. So way to go, grandmother, for doing that. Way to go, mom, for tricking somebody. Hold off on the food 30 more minutes then you can eat. We're glad that you're with us no matter why you're here um, today. And as we look at Mary's life, we're going to actually look at her entire life. Every time she shows up um, in the New Testament today, um, and so we're going to do that seven different times. So I'm breaking every rule of a sermon. You never want to have seven points. No one can remember any of it. Uh, that's okay, though, because I don't want you to remember all of them. As a matter of fact, my challenge to you today is not to necessarily do that at all, but just to think about one. Listen for one aspect of God working in Mary's life that you might be able to hold on to. And you might be able to take with you as you leave today and think a little bit more about and maybe even pray about this week or maybe talk to someone else about this aspect of what God might be doing um, in the life of Mary. So there's seven of these places where she shows up. I'll, I'll give you the narrative arc really quickly. These aren't the seven points, but the narrative arc is uh, first Mary interacts uh, with Gabriel, this message that says you're, you as a virgin are going to have a child. And then she has a child, number two. Uh, this is the Christmas story, Bethlehem behind the manger, feeding trough, right? Jesus is born, That's number two. Uh, number three, we see Jesus when he's really, right, he's a tween and he goes to the temple during this Passover moment. That's number three. Number four, you have this huge gap where Mary doesn't show up for almost 20 years, and really either does Jesus in the, in the Bible. There, there's just this silence that happens that's there. And then Jesus' public ministry, Mary shows up two times, once at the wedding at Cana, and then once when Jesus is teaching some things, and she tries to interrupt that moment of him teaching. And then finally, the last interaction with Mary and Jesus is at the cross, where uh, Jesus is dying on the cross, and some of his last words are directed towards um, his mom that's there. And then there's a seventh one that happens a little bit later on we'll get to at the end. So we're going to go through each one of those uh, this morning. And again, I'd encourage you to try to see if there's one of these that might pique your interest um, or that you might sense that God is encouraging you to think um, more about this morning. There's no quiz, I promise. So number one uh, is this, simply that God acts in the world. It might be overly elementary to say that, um, but God acts inside of the world that he created. This is very evident in Mary's life. She is going along, living her life, and she is interrupted by an angel that has a message from God to her. Gabriel comes to her, and this is actually where this Hail Mary, this prayer, 
begins with. We see in Luke chapter 1, have it on the screen for you. Um, I actually, we have it here in the King James Version because it helps you to maybe understand the nature of some vocabulary in that prayer um, that is there. But verse 27 and 28 says this, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came unto her and said, hail, or greetings, thou art highly favored, or thou art full of grace, would be one of the other translations. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And right after this verse, Mary's first instinct is, what does she do? She says, well, of course you have come to me. I keep the Torah, I am a faithful young Jewish girl, and I've been waiting on God to bring me onto his team and do a great work in my life because I know that I am the kind of person that God is looking for. Now, she doesn't say that at all. She's like, this is not possible. There's no way that God is going to use me in the middle of this. She actually rejects this invitation from the angel. This message, this good news that's coming to her, she stiff arms it. She's like, no, 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 this can't be true. This can't be right, which is actually the same experience that if you're a follower of Jesus and the good news of the gospel has come to you, someone has shared this with you, it should be and it probably is the first reaction you had as well. It's like, there is no way. There is no way God could respond to me that way. <laughs> not a sinner like me, not someone who has the record that I've got, not someone who's done the things I've got. There is no way that God's going to show up to me as a gracious God, not as the judge, not coming to, to punish. But that instinct to reject this and say, there is, this is an impossible message that could be coming my way. That Mary experiences actually becomes true uh, for all of us who have entered uh, into the faith. And then she goes on in, in Luke chapter 1 here, the following verses is a little bit longer. This is called the Magnificat. This is the song of Mary's response to this message from the, from the angel. I'm going to read the verses right leading, up, leading directly up to it, where she's interacting with her uh, relative Elizabeth, who also happens to have a baby, and Elizabeth says this, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you bear, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises. And then this is her song, Mary's song begins right here. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He extends, he, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary's response by the end of the song, after she says, no, there's what, no way this is impossible, she finally says, sign me up. You got a task? I'm your servant. Tell me which way to go. How can I be on the team? What is it that I can do? And actually, it's an interesting moment. You've really experienced the grace of God. God has really acted in your life when your hands release off of your own plans and you begin to move forward in whatever it is that God might be calling you to do. So number one, you just want to acknowledge that God acts inside of the world. We see this in Mary's life. Number two is that God works through human means. God isn't just... Um, God isn't just doing this outside of, of people's experience. He's actually doing it through humans. Mary is this actress in the story of God. It's really fascinating. Again, it's almost too simple to state it, but by stating it, it helps us ask that question. Maybe you're okay with God working in the world, but you're certainly not okay with God using you as one of the actors or actresses in the story. That he might actually be using a normal person, a normal Jewish teenager to bring about his plans inside of whatever it is that he's doing right now. The story 
of um, Mary coming to us begins with this long genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And it, you'll recognize names. It talks about Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah, and Judah had a bunch of kids as well. And then you see these other names like David and Solomon and Rehoboam, and you see Ruth and Boaz. You see name after name after name until finally it gets to Joseph who married Mary who had this Messiah, this Christ after all these generations that Jesus enters into the world. Jesus wasn't dropped off by a stork, right? He didn't, he wasn't a lab experiment that came up or all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere, oh, there's a new rabbi in town and no one knows where he's from. He just dropped out of heaven. No, that's not it. That's not how God did it. What God did is God used a human, a normal experience every day of this teenage girl, Mary, to use her life inside of his plan. And it could be a challenge for you this morning to think that maybe, maybe that God wants to work in your life and through your life in a way as well. So that's number two. Number one, God actually acts in the world. Sometimes hard to believe. Number two, that he might use others. And then number three is that when God speaks, sometimes it's hard to understand it. God can be misunderstood, point number three. So the third time that we see Mary, um, after they go to the temple and kind of take care of some ritual stuff, is when Jesus is is almost a teenager. Um, So a good Jewish family, Mary, Joseph, get the kids, a bunch of other people from Nazareth. They all haul it to Jerusalem. Why? Well, it's festival time. It's Passover. So they're going to go like good, faithful, tradition-following Jews, and they're going to go participate in the Passover festival. That's there. So they go, and something happens in the middle of this. Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 2, just uh, briefly, verse, and this, by the way, if you're a mom here today, some applications will try to drive towards moms specifically. This might be the most encouraging part of your day that's here. So, um, assuming that he, Jesus, was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. And then they began looking for Jesus among their relatives. So they're leaving. They've already been to Passover. Now they're leaving. They're going back home. They've been a day's journey. They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they, I'm going to add finally, they found him inside the temple complex, right? You might have some mom guilt, but you haven't lost Jesus, right? I mean, you have not lost the Son of God. The hopes and dreams of the nation that have been promised to you, you're not looking around like Uncle David, right? Zechariah, has somebody seen him? Where is he? It's possible, right, inside of this to experience misunderstanding. Because when they finally find him inside of the temple complex, he responds to them and says, You knew I would be here. I had to be about my father's business. And then in verse 50, we read, we'll come back to it, that Mary and Joseph say, what is like, what is he talking about? They don't understand what Jesus, what the son of God is saying to them in that moment. This past week, Julie and I had a chance uh, to get out of town uh, with some friends to go to a a marriage retreat. And um, while we were gone, the kids stayed here. And it's the first time we've done that. So it was fantastic. Um, And uh, some of the friends that, uh, stayed with our kids are Dustin and Rebecca Hacker. So Dustin is the worship leader at our Crossroads campus, and Dustin married Rebecca Hacker, who, or Rebecca Blevins, who was here and led the middle school ministry at the Lake Forest campus. And so they got married a few years ago. Before Rebecca was working at Christ Church, she worked at Trinity down the street when I was working there as well. And she was on a part of the team that I was leading at the university, and we had her come stay with our kids when they were little. So we had at that time two-year-old, four-year-old, six-year-old, I think, seven-year-old, something like that. 
And something happened, some altercation between the oldest and whatever. And so our oldest daughter wanted to stay outside and not go back inside while Rebecca's babysitting them. So she's fine. Nah, just stay outside, whatever. So she takes the other two inside, steps in the other room, comes back out, goes to check on her daughter. She's not in the backyard. So she starts calling her name, Abigail, where are you? Doesn't see her. Goes back inside, gets the other two. Have you seen your sister? Where is she? They don't see her. Okay, come with me. So now she takes our little kids in the backyard. They start looking, and she, there's no response, nowhere. Now you can imagine the search team, our, our two youngest, begin. They're in, right? They're going to find their sister. So they're screaming at their top of their lungs, where is she? We, our house backs up to a um, park, like a baseball uh, set of fields and playground. And the kids go play there a lot. So it's not unthinkable that she would have just gone there by herself to, to get away. You have to walk through the woods about 50 yards to do that, which they have a little path they've cut out, so that's fine. So Rebecca takes the other two girls through the path, go to the park, no Abigail. She's not there. Oh, shoot, right? Now they're coming back. The four-year-old's super nervous. The two-year-old, now she's having to carry her through this whole process, back into the house, screaming, where are you? Threats starting to happen. No response. Front yard. Look out front. Where is she? Neighbors. No one's responding. Now it's time as the babysitter to come back in the house and get your phone and call not only your friends that you're babysitting their kids, but your boss and tell them, I have lost your daughter. Please come home from your date and help me find, right? That's the moment that she is experiencing. So right before she picks up her phone to call us, one last threat, which is like, you know, she threatens the life of our daughter if you are in here and you're responding. And sure enough, in that last final request, a cabinet door opens up and our daughter crawls out from underneath this cabinet where she'd been hiding the whole time. And it's like, I'm here, you know, it's there. Now, imagine the anxiety that Rebecca is feeling um, in that moment. And the reason I tell that story is because sometimes we read the scriptures and we forget this is a, this is a young Jewish mom and dad who are teaching their son, teaching Jesus the Torah. They're good Jewish parents and they're instructing them in the ways of the Lord. They, they're following faithfully in tradition and all of a sudden, in the midst of doing that, they find themselves in a situation where they don't have understanding of the situation. And even when Jesus explains it to them, I had to be about my father's business. I had to be talking to the, to the, to the teachers in the temple. They still don't understand, according to verse 50. They say, we don't understand. And it's possible uh, that part of what God is doing in our lives, and even when he speaks to us, that we don't always get it. Um, we live in a day where it's actually very possible not to understand somebody else. And I want to use this as a, as a chance just to apply this to us in general. Um, we live in a day where people don't like to listen to the other person's point. They don't like to engage back and forth. I read an article uh, just in the last week or so by Brett McCracken that was talking about this. He was highlighting uh, the American Humanist Association. And the America's Human American Humanist Association, uh, their subtitle is something like uh, Good Without God. They are an atheistic organization that exists to fight for the free thinking of society. So they want us to be free thinkers. That's, that's sort of what they stand for. But last week, uh, when a, when a um, I'm going to read this quote to you. Uh, last week, when a very prominent atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, put something on Twitter where he was challenging the transgendered movement, right? He was challenging some of the thinking behind this movement. And when he did that, this association withdrew the honor from Richard Dawkins. So years ago, they had hailed him as someone that was helping atheists, helping free thinkers into the world. But now he's put something on Twitter. Instead of engaging him and talking to him about it, trying to take on his argument in the midst of that, what they did is they got together, posted something on their website that said, we remove, we cancel 
this person because he no longer represents the views that we are in the world. And what, what McCracken is saying in his article is that's the world in which we all live. And what is it that the church, how does the church help when that's the scenario, when atheists are canceling other atheists? Like what does the church have to give here? So I have this quote on the screen uh, for you to read with me, but this is what he says. He says, in a strange twist, Christianity, like long accused of being narrow-minded, anti-intellectual, afraid of difficult questions, has the potential to fill a growing void in Western culture. In a world where we increasingly walk on eggshells, unsure when, if, how we're allowed to speak publicly on contested issues, Christianity can become a grace-filled haven for curious questioners, for doubting descendants, dissidents, I'm sorry, and for anyone seeking truth in a world where partisan narratives take precedence. When Mary didn't understand Jesus and she walks back into the temple with Joseph, they don't cancel him. That's not what they did. If you read the narrative, this woman full of grace, described in verse 1, demonstrates that grace even to her son when she doesn't have everything that's understood. And I actually think that seeing that in the midst of misunderstanding is one of the ways that, that we are, can be called forward even in this moment. All right, number four, the fourth thing that we see is actually not something we really see but I'm making a big deal about it. And that is that you go from that moment of Jesus being a 12-year-old in the temple until his public ministry almost 20 years later with nothing. Like God doesn't tell us anything about that. There's just silence that's happening in the midst of that. And I think though that examining Mary's life and seeing what God wasn't doing or at least wasn't publicly doing is something that we can learn from uh, this morning. So the fourth thing that I want you uh, to to think about is that God works when we can't see it. God works even in the midst of silence. There's a song called The Silence of God that goes like this. The lyrics, the author writes, um, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy, rat, from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timber when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. The crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. Sometimes the very fact that we can't see anything working might be an indication to us that God is working in ways that we cannot see. Certainly was true in Mary's life. During this time, we know that Jesus was going to the little small business that Joseph had as a carpenter, right? He was making rocking chairs or whatever Menards and Home Depot had. It was a hot sale item in the first century. That's what he was doing. Because when he shows up, they said, oh, that's the carpenter boy from Nazareth who works with his dad. That's all that we know that's going on in the midst of that. And I heard this past week, and you, some of you may have grown up on a farm, so you may know this, but it was new information to me. But uh, there's, a, there's a farmer, her name is uh, Jennifer Dukes Lee, who is explaining how there's parallels in the agricultural community and, and, and life on the farm and our spiritual lives. And she said this. She said, in the midst of winter, it's the very time when it looks like nothing is happening. Nothing looks alive when you look out at the farm. But in the midst of that moment, when everything looks dead, when there's silence, is exactly when the grub worms are working underneath the ground to, remove, to move the soil in the right place. And uh, it's exactly uh, what the seed are going to need later to be moved around the nutrients of the earth. And when it's freezing outside and then it thaws out and then it's freezing again and it thaws out and then it's freezing again and it thaws out, 
what is happening underneath the ground is that some of these rocks that are causing issues in the ground begin surface to the top. And so that at the end of winter, there's rocks laying on the top of the ground so that the farmer can go out there and pull these rocks out of the ground because the soil knows that that's what it's going to need in order for this flourishing crop to happen in the next season that's there. Farmers know this so well that sometimes they leave a field uh, they, they don't plant in it at all for a year. They have a fallow season, an intentional season where they don't do anything with it so that the land can actually be healed and restored so that ultimately what's intended to happen, the harvest that needs to happen, can happen even greater. And I think this is true in Jesus' life. Like, why didn't Jesus' ministry kick off at age 13, right? What else did he need? What was God doing? In the midst of that silence, he may have been preparing both Jesus and Mary, and I think that it's something that we can think about this morning. That God acts in the world, number one, he's using, using humans as a part of this. He's using normal people to carry out his plan. Uh, number three is that God can be misunderstood. And number four is that, uh, that God works even when we can't see it, right? Now, take a breath. You only have to think about one of these, remember? If you've, already, if you've got yours, that's the one you want to think about, tune me out for the rest of the time that's there, Okay. Uh, think about what you're having for brunch. Uh, if not, keep thinking. There's a few more of these that I want you to see. The next time Mary shows up, she shows up in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus, in both of these situations, twice in the public ministry, it has to do with Jesus creating a new family. That's what God is doing. God is making a new family. First, it's at the wedding at Cana, where you have, literally, you have two people. It's a, it's a wedding. Like, there's a new family that's being formed in the midst of that. And the family that's running it runs out of the wine that's there. So Mary, who's at the wedding with Jesus, says, hey, talk to him. He is going to help you in the midst of this. Do whatever he says. Great advice. Whatever it is that Jesus is saying, you should do it. And they do it. And this is where the first time that Jesus ever, in front of his disciples or anyone else, the first time that he does something that signifies or gives a sign that he is something other than just a really good teacher. Something other than he's just a rabbi like the other rabbis, but might be a little bit more uh, intelligent or understands the scriptures better. But now he gives a sign that he is different, and he turns this water into wine, and kind of throughout this family moment that's creating, this blessing from Jesus shows up in the midst of that. The second time is when uh, Jesus is teaching. He's debating back and forth with the scholars, and he says this. He says, um, uh, or somebody interrupts and says, hey, guess what, Jesus? Your mother is here, and your brothers, they showed up, and they want to talk to you. And he says, who are my mother, and who are my brothers? Almost like this retort back to them. And he says, look, and he points to his disciples, and he says, these are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of God. Jesus begins to challenge this deeply fundamental understanding that flesh or blood is the primary thing that identifies us as family. But instead, now Jesus is offering, and he's making this new idea of family, that is saying that something about doing the will of God, living in the Spirit, being part of God's family, is actually takes preeminence or prominence over your 23 uh, and me score, right? I mean, it is, there's something about the, the Spirit of God, the will of God uniting people in a way that even flesh itself doesn't. And Mary is learning this as she shows up in the midst of Jesus' ministry. And then lastly, the last time Mary, number six, the last time Mary shows up with Jesus is at the cross. I want to read this passage to you briefly um, because it's important to do this. But in, um, in John chapter 19, it's only recorded only in John's gospel, you see this, that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, 
Mary Magdalene, and when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. This little moment, these three verses inside of, the, inside of John's gospel, has captured the imagination of the church for a really long time. Um, there have been uh, just a, any number of songs and sculptures and paintings that have captured this moment where at the cross, in the midst of, of uh, Jesus' suffering, that Mary, his mother, is there, and that one of the disciples, when all the other ones ran away, that one of them, John, shows up as well. So here's some images, depending on what church you grew up in or what museum you have visited, you have seen images like this. There's thousands of them, but we have a couple of, couple of them uh, to show you, that it captures John on one side and Mary on the other. And as it's flipping through these that are there, and, and there's stained glass windows and all sorts of other things, what you see is this deeply human moment, or this, the emotion of a mother who's watching her son be stapled to this tree and, and experience the wrath of the Roman torturers that's there. And then you also see in the midst of evil and injustice and suffering, you see Jesus in the middle of his suffering, what does he do? He turns inward and thinks only about himself, right? No. Unlike us when we experience pain and suffering and we turn inward, Jesus, even in that moment, in the midst of that, what is he doing? He's saying, take care of my mother, He's looking at John, whom he loves, and he says, I am giving, I'm, I'm providing for my mom in the midst of this. I'm providing for this woman. And he's not just providing for Mary in terms of, yes, John takes her into his home for the rest of his life, is what John 19 says. But he's providing for her in a whole other way, right? He's allowing Mary not to just be his, related to him by flesh, but to be a part of this family by the fact that her sins can be forgiven, that our sins can be forgiven, that what Jesus is doing in the midst of his suffering is he is providing for the ultimate need that we have. What do you do with your sins? <laughs> what do you do with the guilt that you carry around? What do you do with the times you have rebelled? What do you do with the times you have failed? What do you do with those moments? What does John do with that? Well, Jesus says that this gift, this moment of provision that he is taking on the suffering of the world, taking the, God, taking the sins our sins on him so that we can actually find life in the midst of that. And those images are images of Mary and, and uh, John at the foot of the cross showing this new relationship and really showing this new family that the church can enter into. Now, when I was working on the sermon, I thought this was the end. I've read this stuff before. I'd read through the Gospels, and this is the last time Mary is mentioned, so this is the end of the sermon. And he, as a matter of fact, when Eric and I were talking last week about how, what song, how we're going to close this out, I told him, well, it ends with, in John chapter 19, and there's this great moment where Jesus is providing for his mother, and it's, it's not just providing in that way, but it points to the provision that Jesus provides all of us, to the forgiveness and grace we can have in the cross. So let's sing a song about something like that. But then as I began to finish studying this past week, I realized Mary shows up one more time. There's a seventh time in which Mary shows up, and I had never seen it before. But in Acts chapter 1, so in that moment after Jesus died— he um, is buried in the tomb. He's raised from the grave. He begins to go around uh, into these witnesses, these eyewitnesses, that he has been resurrected. And then he says, I'm going to go off to heaven. And he ascends to heaven. Before he ascends to heaven, he says, it's actually better that I leave. It's better that I don't stay here because I'm going to send one, your helper, the Spirit to you. 
but I want you to go and wait until the Spirit actually comes. So go wait and pray. So all the followers, the disciples, they go to this place upstairs in a room, the upper room that's there, and they're waiting, and they're praying. And it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, among them was the mother of Jesus, Mary, who had seen her son in, in this torturous situation, thinking that it's the end of it, and then she acts on faith. She has now seen the resurrected Christ, her son on the other side of the grave, and now she's signed up. She's ready. What is it that God wants to do in the world? Because I want to go up there, I want to pray with them, I want to wait, and I want to be sent out on mission. So the seventh thing that we can learn today, and maybe this is yours, maybe you the first one, you're like, yeah, I know God acts in the world. I'm, I'm okay with him using humans. I'm okay whether I understand that or, or don't understand that or can, can see it or not see it. I'm okay with the new family that's there and even the provision that God has provided, this, this sixth one. I believe in those things, but number seven is simply that God sends us on mission as we wait and as we pray. We're starting a new sermon series next week where we're going to be talking a lot about prayer. And it may be that this morning it's worth you thinking about what is it that God is calling you to do? What is it that he might want to do in your own life? Mary raises her hand. She goes to the upper room. She waits. She prays to see how it is that God might be sending her out into the world, even after she's experienced all these things uh, that are there. And this is how you know that the grace of God has reached you. The way that you know that the grace of God has reached you is the way you know that grace has reached Mary, is that she is now signing up to live a life of faith, whatever it is that the Spirit might want to do. And that's the way that you and I can do the same thing. So on this Mother's Day, I encourage you uh, to see what it is that God might be doing in your own life. See if one of those areas where we can see in Mary's life might be challenging you. Think about it. Talk to somebody else about it on the way home. And come back next week as we start uh, this series on prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, it's good to look at the life uh, of Mary in the scriptures. And it's good to see that in the midst of the arc of her life that we might find ourselves in a different season or different place where she was. Um, and we can be encouraged by what it is that you are doing in her life and ways that you might be doing something similar in the life of our church or in the life of our small group, in the life of our friends or family or even in the life of us. For those of us uh, that are here today that know exactly where we are. God, prompt us, give us faith to continue moving forward in that. Uh, for those who don't um, know that or don't sense any of that that are there, God, I, I ask that your spirit might work in the same way um, and that grace might be experienced in such a way that it, just what it did with Mary and the other apostles, um, as they wait and as they pray and as they look to you, that your spirit would show up and send uh, us out, meet us where we are today. Thank you for this service. Thank you for this time to respond uh, to you in song. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.